0: hello welcome to adventures among ideas well on a previous episode i talked about a um i talked about classic dualistic theories of the mind so we had interactionism where mind and matter are different substances capable of Um, affecting each other. We had parallelism, in which mind and matter are different substances that kind of flow alongside each other without affecting each other. And then we had epiphenomenalism, in which uh, matter, or the brain, produces mind, but mind has no subsequent effect on matter. Uh, Today I want to focus on monistic views of the mind, monisms. Which view mind and as uh, mind and matter as the same kind of stuff. So again, I'll talk about three theories. We've got our panpsychism, in which man, uh, in which matter itself is seen to have certain uh, have a certain mental quality out of which both material objects and conscious beings are made. And then you've got your mind-brain identity theory in which mental states are the same thing as brain states and then you've got your behaviorism in which mind is behavior and behavior is usually seen as an activity of an organism which is made out of just physical stuff Uh, and again I'm going to focus on figures from the early 20th century which is kind of where my main knowledge is at the moment so we'll start with panpsychism so of all the theories that I've talked about, I'm least comfortable with uh, classic panpsychism. The basic idea seems easy enough to understand, uh, but I haven't been able to make much sense of the writings by actual historical panpsychists for some reason. Uh, I'm going to try to focus today on Charles Augustus Strong. Charles Augustus Strong. uh, He was an American psychologist of the early 20th century. But it's important uh, to point out that Strong's panpsychism uses W.K. Clifford as a starting point. So it kind of begins with W.K. Clifford. There were other um, panpsychists before that. But um, W.K. Clifford was very influential in early 20th century uh, United States for some reason. He was English. Um, But yeah, very influential. Uh, So let me say something first about Clifford. Uh, Clifford was an English philosopher, and uh, he's rather hard to pin down, so he's somehow altogether an empiricist, a parallelist, and a panpsychist, so he kind of had influence in all these areas. Um, he once argued that all bits of matter, so every little bit of matter, comes with bits of what he called mind stuff attached to them. This was introduced in a famous article called On the Nature of Things in Themselves. This is an important article uh, referred to kind of in the late 19th century, early 20th century. I don't know if many people remember Clifford today um, or read this essay, but it's, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, very commonly known, very well known at the time, On the Nature of Things in Themselves, 1878, it was uh, published. So Clifford's theory of mind stuff seems to be a dualistic theory, or at least on kind of first acquaintance, it seems dualistic. Um, Either maybe substance dualism or property dualism, as I've uh, talked about in the previous episode on this topic. Uh, But the difference between Clifford's dualism and the dualisms that I talked about before is that standard dualism, uh, standard dualists did not suppose that atoms and molecules had the beginnings of mind generally speaking uh, Descartes in fact did not even think that non-human animals had minds right he thought animals were kinds of machines uh, and while William McDougall who I talked about before well William McDougall thought that even lower organisms had souls he seemed to distinguish between living beings and inorganic matter. inorganic matter uh, and so inorganic matter was subject to mechanical laws while living beings could break these laws. And this seems to be um, uh, at least not the way the early panpsychists, it panpsychists write about things. Um, and yeah, so for a dualist like McDougall, this law breaking of uh, living beings was what the concept of the soul explained. So it wouldn't make really make sense to have bits of the soul on non-organic matter as well they might be breaking the laws of uh of mechanics um, but i'm not quite sure how uh mcdougall thought about panpsychism or other dual uh more classic dualists anyway so if clifford is a dualist he's not a dualist in this uh classic sense like descartes or mcdougall or perhaps uh fullerton who i talked about before who was also quite influenced by clifford um so Clifford says that when matter gets organized in different ways, then the mind stuff that's attached to it gets organized in different ways too. So matter organized into the form of a human gives us human consciousness. Uh, but does uh, matter actually exist? Does it really exist? Uh, in, the same, in this same essay, On the Nature of Things in Themselves, uh, Clifford says that the universe consists entirely of mind stuff. So there's just mind stuff actually now. So uh he writes that the reality external to our minds which is represented in our minds is a mat- um, as matter, so the re- reality that's represented ad- as matter is in itself mind stuff. Uh when he writes like this he sounds more like a monist than a dualist, right? It sounds like there's just one kind of thing, there's just mind stuff and everything is made out of mind stuff including matter um so yeah is mind stuff something extra attached to matter or is mind stuff all there is or is this um, a distinction for Clifford without a difference I'm not sure what the correct answer is is here really so um we'll go on to strong talking about strong so strong is equally or you know even more (laughs) perplexing to me Um, his motivation for exploring panpsychism seems easy enough to understand so late in life Um, He wrote that if energy, and he took energy to be the fundamental substance in physics at the time, so if energy were not in its own being soulful or capable of awareness, no such thing as minds could ever arise. That's to say um, the existence of minds requires that the basic elements they are made out of have on their own the capacity of awareness. Uh, this is not necessarily a good argument i think but it is at least a clear argument and some of what's coming is not that clear to me strong mainly laid out his arguments for panpsychism in his books why the mind has a body and the origin of consciousness those were in 1903 and 1918 Um, i'll kind of rely mostly on the latter on his book the origin of consciousness since it's a little bit clearer to me than the former Strong is very good at explaining other people's views and criticizing other people's views, but um, when it comes to explaining his own view, I get lost quickly. Uh, So first of all, in Strong's view, um, one of the other appeals of panpsychism is that it seems to reconcile the other major dualistic theories of mind. Um, There was basically, um, at this time, there was basically um, the three kinds of dualisms that I talked about before. There was also materialism, and there was uh, panpsychism. panpsychism. Panpsychism he also calls a revised materialism. It's kind of a version of, uh, it has kind of the logic of materialism, except it everything is kind of psychic. Um, and But it kind of reconciles, at least in his view, it reconciles all these other, um dualism so in a certain way it reconciles. it's supposed to reconcile all the theories of mind of materialism and all the kinds of dualism um by its particular view of the psychic nature of reality uh so the argument for this goes like this uh so like parallel parallelism panpsychism claims that the mind does not act on the brain but this is because the brain is made out of mind this is one of the things I don't really understand um, on the other hand, like interactionism, the mind does interact with the non cerebral parts of the body, so the non brain parts of the body. And why there is a difference between the brain and the rest of the body in terms of their relation to mind, uh, this is not clear to me. I don't really get this part. But then there is epiphenomenalism also, right? So we had parallelism, interactionism, and then epiphenomenalism. And so Strong makes the distinction be- between consciousness. On the one hand, and mind on the other, where consciousness is what he calls the function of awareness. Consciousness in this sense, he says, is passive or inefficacious. So while the mind does affect the body, consciousness or awareness as a function does not affect the body. It's epiphenomenal, right? For strong interactionism, parallelism, and epiphenomenalism, each have a kernel of truth then. And these kernels are kind of revealed and subsumed by uh, panpsychism. But then there is this mind stuff. This uh, mind stuff, this thing that is at the heart of Strong's theory, which he borrowed from Clifford. Uh, what is this mind stuff? Well, Strong points out that it has four characteristics, at least you know, in his view, he's got, it's got these four characteristics. Uh, even though we, I mean, we can't see it or measure it, I guess. But um, just kind of intellectually, we can figure out that it's got these four characteristics. So f- the first and second characteristics are that it's in space and it's in time. And this right away distinguishes Strong from the dualists who generally believe that mind is inextended. They might think that it was you know, extended in time, but it was not extended in space for the dualists strong is uh kind of switching this up he thinks the mind is both in time and in space um but also right uh mind. so the the third and fourth things uh characteristics of uh, mind stuff so mind stuff is thirdly it's capable of change so it can be changed uh in certain ways and the fourth characteristic is that it has a psychic character so regarding its changeability strong says that mind stuff is in motion so it moves it moves around and that this motion has something to do with our perceptions and feelings that i don't quite understand um, and regarding mind stuff psychic character he says that feeling not necessarily felt and uh, or introspected feeling is on the panpsychist theory the substance of the ego And by consequence, the substance of the world out of which the ego originates. And if you follow that, maybe you can explain it to me. So it's these third and fourth characteristics of mind stuff. Yeah, it's with these third and fourth characteristics that I kind of start getting lost. Uh, Strong sums up his theory by writing, If the ego, I guess he means here the self, the ego were not psychic, nothing would ever be given and a psychic ego can come by evolution only out of a psychic world so again as I mentioned before um all of these theories are intended to appeal to science even to evolution even the dualists, the dualists were very concerned to couch their theory in evolutionary terms and scientific terms they're appealing to scientific evidence to evidence to evolution um but there's always this um kind of supernatural element to their theories either a soul that we can't that doesn't follow the same laws as the rest of nature or this kind of mind stuff that uh we kind of logically know about but we uh you can't know about it really in a empirical way um Yeah, so he does think that uh, the mind evolves, but it evolves out of a psychic stuff, right? So not just out of matter, but out of kind of psychic matter, which is called mind stuff. Yeah, so I won't go into more details about this because I find that, um, uh, yeah, I just don't get it as well as I should to in order to very well explain it. It... Uh, um yeah i don't have quite enough mind stuff of my own to make sense of it so i'll leave it a little bit vague but it's uh yeah it could be worth looking into if you're interested in such things uh so but i do have to add that even though i personally um find strong's theory difficult to um, make sense of um although i kind of i get why he is drawn to it i just um don't understand his explanation of it But I should say that his work was very well received during his lifetime while I was trying to research Strong. I read several very positive reviews of his work, you know, from this uh, early 20th century period. Um, But these reviews did not bring me very much closer to understanding Strong. But, uh, yeah, it's just worth pointing out that other people, people who were much smarter than me, who had a uh, a better allotment of mind stuff, saw great merit in his work. Um, panpsychism, though, has continued to be a popular position. It's kind of waxed and waned over the years, but two recent philosophers who I often uh, think of in connection with panpsychism are Galen Strawson, who has actually cited Strong occasionally, and uh, Philip Goff is another uh, pretty well-known right now, in well, at least in this kind of uh, parochial area of uh, philosophy of mind. Uh, so I may try to cover their ideas in the future, since they um, they are easier for me to understand but I want to move on moving on to something a little bit easier for me to wrap my mind around so to speak which is the um uh mind uh what is it the mind brain identity theory or uh, I'm gonna also kind of call it neural correlationism or dual aspect theory these are kind of related they're not necessarily the same um but at least in the theory that I'm going to talk about they're the same thing (laughs) Um, or at least uh elements of the same theory so this is the view that the mind-body problem is solved by looking at what's going on in the brain which is up here I think in your skull this is sometimes called the mind-brain identity theory and I'm going to consider the views of the psychologist Max Meyer Max Meyer today Meyer is sometimes considered an early behaviorist though he uh emphasized the brain more than the average behaviorist at the time behaviorists were kind of split on whether um we needed to know much about the brain um Meyer was uh, very interested in the brain and he was especially interested in finding the neural correlates of mental states you might have heard this term if you're uh if you pay attention to kind of modern uh philosophy of mind or neuroscience people like to talk about neural correlates the basic idea is that for each mental state there is a corresponding brain state. Uh, for the organism that has a brain state, this brain state has a subjective aspect. So the brain state is objective, right? It's something that everyone can see if they looked in the right place. Um, but for the person having it, it's got a subjective aspect. So I think of uh Meyer's theory as both a kind of neural correlationism or brain, a mind-brain identity theory, and as a dual aspect theory. And this can be considered a kind of monism because it assumes there's just one kind of stuff. And this stuff has both objective and subjective aspects depending on where you're standing. And brain states are objective because we can observe them and measure them. And, yeah, you know, multiple people can do this. But for the organism which has, which actually has the brain state, these brain states have a certain subjective or inner quality, which is how the organism knows that they're having a brain state. Um, This view is perhaps expressed most clearly in the last chapter of Myers' book, The Fundamental Laws of Human Behavior. Myers has at least a couple of really um, important books, well-known books. One of them is The Fundamental Laws of Human Behavior, which I'm mostly talking about today. Um, This theory is not unlike the theory of Thomas Huxley, which I discussed on a previous episode, or of other 19th century scientists. This was kind of a uh, a common idea. Huxley thought consciousness, if you heard my previous episode, Huxley thought consciousness was a function of the brain, which meant for him that it was caused by the brain, in the same way that movement is caused by contractions of the muscle. Contractions of muscles, usually more than one. Um, Likewise, Meyer argued that we have good reason to believe that a mental state never occurs unless there is, at the same time, a nervous process taking its path through the higher nerve centers and I suppose by higher nerve centers he means something like the prefrontal cortex or at least certain parts of the cortex but the relation is probably not causal in the way that Huxley thought so Meyer thinks it's more likely that brain states and brain states and mental states are strictly simultaneous Um, though he acknowledges that the technology of the time did not allow scientists to actually prove this So um, yeah, I'm just wondering if that sounds a little bit like parallelism could be. I mean, it does sound a little bit. I think I'll maybe mention this later on. It does sound a little bit. There is a kind of parallelistic aspect to this. Um, So if brain states and mental states are strictly simultaneous, then Myers says that we have a right to describe them by saying that they are really only one phenomenon occurring in the world but that this phenomenon has two aspects. And this is why I'm, I've described Myers' theory as a dual aspect theory, which is just another popular kind of uh, um, theory of the mind. Uh, yeah, so uh, so it's both kind of a mind-brain identity theory and a dual aspect theory. You could also think of this as a kind of naturalized or collapsed parallelism. Yeah, so I want to bring out maybe it's... Um, uh, that flavor of parallelism a little bit, since in parallelism mind and body do not have a cause-effect relation, but are somehow tied together so that they change simultaneously. Uh, but whereas in traditional parallelism, mind and body are two different kinds of things, of course, right? There was this um, non-material substance that was the mind. In dual aspect theory, they are just one kind of thing that can be experienced in two different kind of ways. So as an objective, you can experience a brain state objectively or subjectively depending on kind of how you're looking at it or what, and whether or not you are the organism who is having the brain state um a brain state is objective because anyone can observe it if they have the right instruments I've mentioned this already uh but insofar as the brain state is only known by the person having the brain state, like I am having my brain state right now and you are having your brain state, those brains respective brain states are subjective for each person having it any brain state is potentially objective anyone can observe any brain state giving the tools and the opportunity to do so uh, but not all brain states are known subjectively. Only brain states that occur in very high nerve centers can be known subjectively for the person who's having them. So we don't know all of our brain states, right? We don't feel all our brain states; just some of them. And they have to reach to a certain, a certain point, a certain area of the brain, which uh, I don't think Meyer speculated too much about at the time because uh, this was 1911. Um, But yeah, there's many more specific theories today, of course, because we know somewhat more about the brain. Uh, The reason why Meyer is also a behaviorist is because he points out that we don't ordinarily observe each other's brain states, but we do attribute mental states to each other. And what's going on here? So we don't observe brain states, but we attribute mental states. Well, what we're normally interested in explaining is each other's behaviors so that's what we're really interested in is what we are going to do what other people are going to do and what we're going to do uh, Meyer uses the example of a boy who has put a plank on a streetcar track so laid down a kind of a wooden plank or something on a streetcar track and this has caused the derailment of the streetcar we want to know why the boy did what he did normally all we can know is what he did we can observe what he did or um of figure out what he did based on the evidence there um and we can know the effect of what he did and we can know his explanation we can ask him why did you do this and we can know his explanation uh so but was he putting the plank on the track was the i mean was uh, was this putting of the plank on the track um Was this an action intended to save or to harm, right? You can, there's maybe different reasons. He might give us one reason, but there are many, um, you know, if we kind of exclude his testimony, there are multiple reasons why someone might put a plank onto a streetcar track. Um, So what we want to know, what we really want to know is what type of an act it was. this will give us the explanation of it the true reason for the boy's action is to be found uh, really only in his brain states which are inaccessible both to us and to him so we can't um, actually access his brain states under normal conditions and neither can he So we're both kind of uh, trying to explain what happened without access to the brain states So we attribute to him a mental state. This is just kind of a convenience. We attribute to him a mental state. Either he wanted to save the streetcar from a bigger danger ahead or he wanted to hurt someone on the streetcar. And we attribute um, this mental state to him as a convenient substitute for the brain state that neither we nor he has access to. In other words, um, because the true causes of our behavior are hidden in our brains... We attribute mental states to each other as a way of explaining and predicting what we're going to do. And this reminds me of Huxley's view, actually, that consciousness is a symbol of what's going on in the brain, right? So we've kind of invented uh, mental states to help us figure out what people are doing since we don't have access to their brain states, we don't have access to sort of the true causes of their behavior. So we gonna kind of make up this idea of uh, mental states but it has to be pointed out that Meyer's behaviorism is although it has kind of this behavior element to it it's very different from the behaviorism of people like John Watson and BF Skinner uh, Watson and Skinner focused much more on the environment as the cause of behavior and Skinner in particular thought it was much more useful to focus on the environment as a cause of behavior because we can observe and control the environment much more easily perhaps ethically than we can observe and control someone's nervous system um and I would say that Meyer's position on the mind is pretty standard stuff today uh many scientists are still searching for what they call the neural correlates of consciousness and the idea that uh, mental states are just brain states is quite common among scientists and philosophers. Uh, yeah, just a very, very common, common idea. Uh, but let's finish up by looking at behaviorism. I've been talking too long, I feel like. But let's finish up by looking at behaviorism. I know more about Behaviorism than about the other theories I've mentioned so I'll speak a little bit more generally here I won't focus so much on one person but I'll try to tie together a few different ideas from different people Um, Behaviorists are not necessarily monists but most Behaviorists have I think been monists of a materialistic variety so maybe they're kind of my my stand-ins for materialists here although they're um yeah i haven't talked i didn't really talk about materialists i didn't find a good um so far a good representative of materialism in the early 20th century um lots of people like to argue against the materialists but um uh, it's hard i'm sure there are some but i haven't come across a big name but maybe the b- behaviorists will kind of count as my de facto materialists although not all behaviorists are necessarily materialists um so uh but generally I guess they um generally they think that living organisms are made out of ultimate materials that are not themselves alive or conscious but when you put them together in certain ways they create systems right these kind of inorganic materials create systems or organisms that we call alive and perhaps conscious behaviorists mostly think that there is no good reason to speak of atoms and smaller particles as being alive or conscious like panpsychists. So, I've never seen a behaviorist subscribe to a notion like mind stuff. So, maybe we'll call them materialists. Uh, but naturalists would be a better word for behaviorists than materialists. Um, I think behaviorism is generally yeah, has generally been identified with materialism, materialism, but like I said, I don't think this needs to be the case behaviorism uh only really seems incompatible with traditional traditional dualism uh it seems to me that what a that a behaviorist could be a panpsychist um a panpsychic monist or could be some uh, you know a pluralist believing that there's different kinds of just different kinds of things irreducibly in the universe uh dewey john dewey for example who i'd argue was a behaviorist's Uh, a behaviorist was not uh, too interested in the nature of the fundamental particles that make up the universe Uh, he was a naturalist he called himself a naturalist and was uh, generally opposed to dualism on logical grounds but he was not opposed to the idea that the universe was made up of uh many different kinds of substances uh Charles Sanders Peirce who was also a kind of proto-behaviorist, not exactly a behaviorist, but there was many behavioristic elements in his ideas. He held views that were compatible with panpsychism, some views that were compatible with panpsychism. He thought everything in the universe was governed by habit, and that matter was mind that had been rigidly fixed by habit. Uh, And this is a complex and uh, hard to interpret idea that I won't try to totally explain here but it's you know, interesting to, to read about. And you know perhaps we could uh, think of pan-behaviorism rather than pan-psychism, given how important uh, habit was to his thought. Dewey also had said some similar things, and there's uh, some, uh, some grounds maybe for a pan-behaviorist theory of reality, which would probably be similar to uh, universal Darwinism, if you know the idea of general or universal Darwinism uh maybe I'll look, take a look at that at an, uh, another day but uh for now going on um yeah well to sum up I guess basically whether the ultimate constituents of the universe can best be described as mental or physical uh was not a really important issue for most Behaviorists um but Behaviorists were pretty much United in thinking that what we call animal the animal or human mind was a kind of Behavior the mind is not simply brain activity though it requires brain activity in uh, creatures that have brains but instead behaviorists see mind as some part of the organism's response to its environment but of course the devil is in the details here the early um one early Behaviorist um Edgar Arthur Senior Jr thought that mind was a concept we used to explain the fact that different organisms and different kinds of organisms show different ranges of behavior we tend to think that uh, organisms that show a greater variety of behavior a greater variety of ways to achieve a certain goal a certain purpose um, that we can observe we tend to think that they have more of a mind than other organisms or a better developed mind or something but the word mind here just describes this fact that some organisms have a greater variety of ways to achieve self-preservation and other subsidiary goals than other organisms. It doesn't refer to something that exists in and of itself. It's um, a little bit like the, the concept of mental state for Meyer. It's something that helps us explain, um, but it doesn't actually exist per se. Uh, And then the standard subcategories of mind are just subcategories of behavior. So psychologists and philosophers will talk about mental states or mental processes like perception, emotion, thought, memory, and so on. Behaviorists understand all of these things to be doings, behavings of the organism. Emotion, for example, is an attitude resulting from the effects of the organism's actions on the organism itself. Memory is just a reinstatement of the bodily conditions of perception in the absence of the external object of perception. And uh, thought is uh, subtle actions of the voluntary muscles. And uh, yeah, and so on and so on. These ideas come uh, that I'm mentioning here come out of the writings of people like John Dewey, George Herbert Mead, Edgar Singer Jr., John Watson, Edwin B. Holt, uh, B.F. Skinner and others Uh, basically the only so-called mental state that could not be reduced to behavior i don't know if reduced is the right word or translated into behavior uh, was sensation sensation can be a tricky problem Uh, sensation was generally conceived i think as a brute uh, mechanical change to the organism especially the organism's sense receptors and uh, we could describe sensation as the maybe the afferent 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 uh, side of uh nerve activity which um, i mean uh you know traveling nerve activity traveling from the sense receptor to the brain as opposed to from the brain to the sense receptors um in higher organisms such as humans these sensations don't usually affect us very directly so we're not directly responding to sensations normally sometimes we are um sensation is usually uh well what matters to the um what matters really to humans and uh, probably most animals are the perceptions that are made out of these mechanical changes to the receptors uh, sense receptors and per- perception involves habit and muscle action so sensation is usually mediated through perception uh, we don't build up our world out of sensations because we're uh, almost always acting in situations that are at least partly familiar Higher organisms mostly perceive objects, not quality, not kind of these uh, simple qualities of the world, supposed simple qualities of the world or qualia. Uh, humans, at least, analyze qualities out of objects when the situation becomes problematic. So um, the qualities are kind of uh, you know, a secondary element in the situation that we um, kind of start to perceive when we need to but normally we're dealing with objects and kind of whole situations. Uh, but this analysis of qualia, as uh, philosophers like to call them, is a form of behavior. So when we think about questions like, do I prefer, prefer this shade of blue or that shade of blue for my outfit? How does this blue make me feel? Um, we're stimulating ourselves to act in terms of some quality, which we're carefully analyzing out of some b- larger situation. So uh, what we don't do is we don't have the sensations first and um we don't have the different kinds of sensations first and then build up situations out of them we're kind of in the situation and then if we need to we analyze um these uh sensations out of the situation but on the other hand, if we find ourselves in some very strange situation, we might have very vague sensations of brightness and darkness, redness, greenness, silence, loudness, etc. These different kinds of um, this kind of more simple uh, sensations, maybe. Um, but even here, these relatively primary sensations are not just passively received. We're actively trying to figure out what they are, what's going on, what do they mean uh so that we know how to behave so we're we're not passively sensing them we're trying to perceive them right we may not have a good perception of them yet but we're trying to turn them into perception into objects into a situation that we uh, can interpret and figure out how to act in so the discrimination of qualia things like hardness blueness sourness etc the discrimination of these kinds of things is a behavioral act Though this discrimination has an apparently non-behavioral basis in just mechanical changes to sense receptors and to nerve signals going to the brain and things like that. We might say that the material causes of qualia are found in the physics and chemistry of the world and the biology of the organism, you know the idea of material causes. So we need to have, um, in order, order to have sensations, we need uh, kind of the physical and chemical Properties of the world and the biological properties of ourselves. Um, but the efficient causes of qualia are to be found in the behavior of the organism. The thing that actually makes these qualia happen to us is um, in our behavior. It's behavioral in relation uh, as a relation of the organism to the environment. And this maybe makes more sense if you know your Aristotle and your different kinds of Aristotelian causes. Um, but in short, coming to the conclusion now. Uh, From from a behavioristic perspective, we can think of mind as a general term covering many more specific terms like perception, emotion, thought, and so on, which have fairly straightforward behavioral explanations. Uh, The advantage of behaviorism is that we can avoid a lot of metaphysical speculation about stuff that can't actually be observed, such as immaterial souls or quasi-material mind stuff, and we can avoid speculation about what science may ultimately tell us about the brain which seems to me one of the most uh, seems to be one of the most complicated objects in the known universe all right to conclude perhaps my uh, bias comes out at the end there being a naturalist my own views are closer to Myers and to the behaviorists I have a lot of sympathy for the dualists who are basically trying to reconcile older religious or spiritualist views of the human being with newer scientific ones I have a certain sympathy also for the idea of panpsychism even though i can't make much sense out of um, early 20th century defenses of it as i mentioned uh, there's a lot that we don't understand about the nature of uh but there's you know, you know thinking in terms of panpsychism there is a lot we don't know about the uh, nature of uh, atomic and subatomic particles i think it's uh i think it's possible to explain life and mind as emerging from non-living and non-mental entities But how much continuity versus how much discontinuity there is between uh, the living and the non-living is still a matter of debate. So it could be much more continuous than we're, like a materialist might think. Or maybe not a materialist, but, um, you know, if you think that life emerges from the non-living, there may be more continuity there than we're uh, used to thinking. Um... But on the other hand, there there may just be kind of an absolute um, discontinuity there at some point where you just get totally non-living stuff, uh, um, non-stuff that doesn't have any experience at all totally. And then out of that, you get stuff that is living and has experiences. But uh, yeah, the nature of the continuity or discontinuity there, uh, I think we just don't uh, know enough yet, or it's still very debatable. So, personally, I would probably find a pan-behaviorism, as hinted at by the early pragna- pragmatists, uh, more satisfactory than a pan-psychism. But, um, yeah, this uh, pan-behaviorist proposal will have to wait for another time. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening. That's all for today. So, have a good one. Bye for now.